Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Two years ago, I co-produced a book called Untold Resilience. It captured the stories of 19 women who found deep reserves of courage to survive extreme poverty, the loss of a child, a partner with dementia, violence, and more. My guest today knows a lot about tapping into that part of ourselves which propels us forward. Seven years ago, Tarang Chawla lost his sister, Nikki. She was murdered by her partner. It changed the course of his life. And today, he's an activist for gender equality, a mental health advocate, and the host of a compelling new podcast on family violence. Here to talk about resilience, Tarang Chawla, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thanks, Helen. Tarang, can you tell me, do you think resilience can be taught? Yeah, I think so. I think you can teach resilience. Uh, I think that some people, unfortunately, profit off this idea of teaching resilience that isn't necessarily getting to the core of what makes up resilience. But I certainly think it's something that um, can be taught or or definitely learnt along the way. You know, that teaching doesn't necessarily have to take a very structured path. Like it doesn't have to be a course. It doesn't have to be those types of things. But it's about seeking out the opportunities to flex that muscle and to learn how can I become more resilient Um, and also what does resilience mean in the circumstances you know resilience can mean different things for men in the workforce than it can mean for certain women in the workforce so there's certain things there around um, defining what that resilience is and then seeking out the avenues and opportunities to be able to learn it that's a really interesting perspective on it do you think as a mental health advocate at, at what point does pushing yourself and your mental health intersect and you know, I'm I'm just conscious that some people listening to this will not feel very resilient and you know how that feels. So how do you reconcile Mm. those two competing issues? Yeah, I think it's, firstly, it's a fantastic question. I think that one of the misconceptions that I've had in life and I think that others particularly have when it comes to this idea of resilience and pushing ourselves And in your framing of the question is so perfect because I think it speaks to this idea that we think that they're mutually exclusive, that we think that being resilient and then self-care or self-reflection or self-awareness about where we're at in terms of our overall mental health somehow exist counter to one another. I think it's something that in particular industries, it's almost like prioritized. Like if you think of like, you know, creative arts and other industries, right? Like to use that niche example of like the tortured artist or whatever, right? That if they're mentally unwell, that they're somehow doing their best work or 
the, you know, if we, if we think about it in like professional services, we think of like the autocratic, over-the-top, overbearing, micromanaging CEO, but also having this kind of like resilience about themselves that other people in the industry don't have. And I think that that's something that we've, as a society, you know, made a mistake about, that we've, we've thought of these things as being counter to one another, that we've thought that if we are pushing ourselves to an unhealthy limit, we'll somehow achieve better. But you know, a lot of the research has shown that having more flexible working arrangements, having working arrangements that are embedded in equality actually builds resilience. You know, the idea that resilience is being able to push yourself to the point where you're burnt out, uh, that might be beneficial for like, say, six months or 12 months or even five years or whatever amount of time people can manage without ever taking a break. But this notion that we are just cogs on a wheel eventually is going to catch up to us. And I think that it also takes away from some of those things that are so important that resilience brings. You know, resilience brings creativity, it brings innovation, it brings new ideas, it brings better results, particularly for business. I think that resilient leaders cultivate better results. I want to separate resilience from a personal experience that totally flaws every aspect of your life. And, you know, you have been through that versus resilience as a leader and what that means in practical terms. So staying with the kind of the general discussion on resilience for the moment, have you seen great leadership and would you say that a great leader does show resilience in the face of business style concerns or challenges? Yeah, every great leader has some element of resilience on display. You know, we we often talk about the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, and her leadership style and her empathy. And that's a form of resilience, you know, to, to have that emotional display, particularly when women as leaders are put into a position where if they display emotion or they display care or compassion, that they are you know, misrepresented or they're labelled as being weak or effeminate or overly emotional or not fit for the job. And so there's a form of resilience in being able to be authentic and present her true self. The other counter to that is is uh, the way that Angela Merkel displayed resilience in her sense of leadership, you know, and she had a very different leadership style to Jacinda Ardern's, but both sort of equally important and both I think what speaks to them in terms of, you know, take an example of politics here, but like business, what speaks to me about those leadership traits and those styles is authenticity. You know, I think that a lot of resilience is born out of authenticity and being as authentic as possible in terms of your leadership style. I think that leaders who are true to their core and to their core values and beliefs ultimately do better because I think that it transcends industry. It transcends the product, you know, if they're they're in sales, it transcends to actually being something that the end consumer, I think they see through that and they understand the resilience. And so for me, every, every, influential leader that I've had has displayed a sense of strong kind of resilience through authenticity of, of character and integrity. Yeah, I think that's a really great point and um, a really a really great way of describing it. I, I'm aware that you, you, your own um, battle with resilience um, was tested in 2015 when your sister, um, much-loved sister, life was taken by her uh, partner at the time without reliving that trauma 
We've learned a lot in recent times, thanks to Grace Tame, about what these discussions can do to people who have gone through these circumstances. So I'm not asking you to do that, but I am asking you to talk a little bit about how you found those those qualities to get you through those times. Oh, wow. What a fantastic question, Helen. I think, uh, yeah, losing my sister, I think losing anyone in any setting is particularly difficult. You know, like grief is such a strange beast and it manifests in different ways at different times. Uh, losing someone that is very dear to you, like, you know, a sibling or a family member, and particularly in the context of family violence where there's a betrayal of trust and what is expected, you know, of, of intimate relationships and, and all close relationships or one where there's, there's an, a degree of trust, uh, it, it really shakes a lot of your core belief system. So in that sense, your resilience is tested, uh, particularly emotionally, your resilience is tested. Uh, and I think for me, you know, both at the time and since, I found that the significance of mental health and well-being and looking after oneself became even more important and crucial and, frankly, dare I say, vital. You know, for me to be able to, you know, I started doing advocacy work quite quickly after my sister's murder. You know, within, I think within six weeks of her murder, which was three weeks after the funeral because we had to wait for, you know, the autopsy and everything to actually be able to do that. I'd written, I think, and published two op-eds in the, in the newspaper about different aspects of the of the issue of family violence. And, and that was a, a separate thing, right, around leadership and me thinking that, hang on, I need to say something about this. But in its own way, that sense of purpose and that belief was what gave resilience. You know, and I think that's about leaning into the discomfort in a healthy way. You know, on the one hand, I had to make sure that I'm prioritising my mental health and getting support and looking after myself. And on the other, it was finding a sense of purpose because that gives you resilience. You know, and also I think for me, Helen, I come from a South Asian background and, you know, my parents, we moved to Australia when I was an infant and I grew up around a family where my parents worked very hard. You know, my, my parents, both of them worked very hard, very long hours, in fact, um, juggling multiple jobs, starting a business, you know, failing in the first couple of businesses, then, you know, starting again from scratch and, and, and seeing that, right, seeing that from a very early age, I think inculcated in me this sense that, you know, you, failure is not something to be afraid of, you know, that you can, you can fall down as long as you at least try to get up or at least put your hand up to say, hey, I need help. And I think that's something that I've seen that, you know, I think of my parents both as great leaders because the resilience that they've displayed, you know, whether it's the emotional resilience that they've displayed in the wake of losing, you know, their only daughter and their second child to murder, um, the, the sort of grace with which mum has handled herself, particularly publicly when, you know, news media have put microphones in her face and asked for comment and she sort of gave such dignified responses. And I think that resilience comes in so many forms. But for me, losing my sister sort of took me back in a foundational way to some of the ways that I'd seen my parents cultivate resilience in my childhood. And that gave me a sense of having a foundation to lean on, that that resilience was, was something that I, um, yes, can cultivate, but you can also kind of look at aspects in your life to see who are the people close to you that you trust that you can then learn from in order to display in whatever way will help you in your own day-to-day life. I came away um, from our last 
talk when I was in Melbourne pondering the unfairness of what happened to your parents because you were telling funny stories about your parents, um, about your mum and about your dad and, you know, moving to Port Lincoln and then your mum going, no, this is not going to work and packing the family up and, and, and just the sheer, I guess, slog of it for a number of years to make a life in Australia mm. and then to lose, as you say, their only daughter. Do you, do you ever just like reflect on that and just go, that is damn unfair. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah, I'd be I'd be lying if I said that I didn't, you know, and I'd be lying if I said that I didn't sometimes go, oh, you know, stuff this. This is this is so unfair. But the reality is that this is really common, you know, and we've done this podcast there's no place like home, which I'd love to talk to you about Helen as well, and that podcast is really pulling back the curtain on domestic and family violence and domestic abuse and showing I think for the first time in in history, in Australia at least, doing so in a way where we are talking to people who have lived experience, who could have, many of the people could have become like my sister, whose name we learn about afterwards for a reason we should never have learnt about them. I mean, when I reflect on on my both my parents' life, but my mum in particular, my mum would have been 23 when she had an arranged marriage to a man she'd met fewer than 10 times. And then within 18 months after being married, less, in fact, uh, she had me. 18 months is a stretch. I think it was like 15 months, right? So within 15 months after being married, she had her first child. And then at 25, she had a child to a man she'd met two years prior and married and then moved to the other side of the world, pre-internet days, right? It's rotary phone days. And she had no concept of what life would be like in Australia. She was like raised on English literature and loved books and packed suitcases full of books because she was like, I need to be able to read. And if I can't read when I get to Australia, I'm going to want to kill myself. And then this son's going to grow up. My son's going to grow up as an orphan. So that's what I'm doing. And my dad was like, I think it's cold there. I think we should pack blankets. And, you know, and then so they rocked up like four or five suitcases, like 20 or $30, something like that. And they were like, okay, I guess we're here now. What do we do? And that's that story that I was telling you about in Port Lincoln where that was their first stop in South Australia. My mum was like, not having this. Like there is nothing going on here. So for someone like my mum, who's an extroverted character by nature and loves to go out and loves to, you know, socialise, she was just like, oh, my God, you know, who is this man that has brought me here to this part of the world? What am I going to do? And so I think she developed this sense of humour and some of the most, you know, some of the resilience that I've built in life is probably a byproduct of just being roasted constantly by my mum. You know, like I've tweeted things, I've tweeted achievements to like 20,000 or whatever followers. And my mum has been the first comment just to say, yeah, but you still suck at making the bed or something like that, you know? And it's just like, keeps you, it keeps you humble and this degree of humility that like, don't get too big ahead. Because I think particularly as men, we grow up in the world where we're told that we are the best. Right. So I think that in that respect, it helped having that kind of influence as a parent. But then the flip side is, is the stuff that you asked me about, where it, sometimes you're just like, man, this is so unfair. This just isn't right. But then that's, that's the, the sad reality about the world that we live in is that society is one where women in particular aren't safe. What happened to Nikki wasn't in isolation. You know, that year alone, there were, I think, 86 women thereabouts killed in, in, in Australia. 
you know, that was one of the things that stood out to me. And that that stood out really early, that if this is happening to someone like Nikki, who is educated, ambitious, creative, independent, um, and could could suffer one of the ultimate betrayals of trust where an intimate partner takes their life, if that can happen to her and primarily men are committing the violence, not to say that, you know, women don't or they're incapable of it, but primarily men are and primarily women are the victims then, you know, in intimate settings or in, in positions of trust where, where that's occurring. And so that I think speaks a lot to the kind of society that we've got and, and one of the reasons that I think that I'm so passionate about combating inequality because I think we're, you know, whether you make an economic argument or you make a health argument or you just simply make a human argument, ultimately women are suffering and we're all missing out as a consequence of that. I want to talk a little bit about some of your projects because you have become a well-known activist for gender equality and a writer and you started as a lawyer. Uh, Just to amuse your mum, I'm going to say you were named as the 2017 Young Australian of the Year finalist in Victoria uh, in 2017, you're also the recipient of the University of Melbourne's Rising Star Award for the Young Alumni, and you've also been awarded the AFL Community Champion Award by the Carlton Football Club. So you've had significant leadership attributes and roles from a pretty early age. I mean, you're not particularly old now. You've got two projects on the go um, that are in your sweet spot. One is uh, There's No Place Like Home, which is working with the 10 women that you identified, that were the stories that you, you wish to tell. You've just come through that project. The podcast is available, or certainly the trailer is available, and the podcast will be available soon. Tell me, what did you learn from that experience, and how do you feel at the other end of it? Because I know at times it was pretty harrowing. Oh, without a doubt, Helen. It was uh, It was at times harrowing, at other times terrifying, at other times uplifting, inspiring, but ultimately, what it was for me is what I hope it is for everyone that listens to it. And I would encourage everyone with even the most slightest passing interest in the issue to give it a listen. Because this is a podcast about domestic abuse and family violence, right, as a topic. But it's at its core, right, the very the heart of this podcast is not a podcast about domestic abuse and family violence. It's a podcast about hope. It's a podcast about hope for the future, hope from the stories of those women and and men who have survived and every one of the 10 people who has so generously shared some of their most intimate thoughts and feelings and experiences, you know, with, with not only myself but the broader Future Women team and everyone who's worked on this podcast and ultimately with everyone who listens to it. And I think that what I learned from speaking to these primarily women, um, but 10 people, was that there is so much untapped potential in the world when it comes to women in particular. There is so much resilience that these women display in simply just getting up every day. Some of the stories of what these women have experienced is harrowing. So, for instance, Geraldine Bilston, a woman from Melbourne who so generously shared experiences with us. And there's audio of, you know, in the podcast of a triple zero phone call that she has to make that is so distressing to listen to. But she plays that and she played it as a reminder, not only to others, but to herself of 
what she has overcome and what she has survived and endured. So I think from from that angle, for me, it was so important to to not only understand that, uh, yes, it's difficult, it's difficult on a personal level, but ultimately it gave me a sense of hope that there is untapped potential and that these women that we're speaking to are just the tip of the iceberg in the sheer number of women out there who if we invested in, if we invested in their leadership and we, if we invested in their development, if we invested in their independence, then we collectively, you know, including men, would benefit. But unfortunately, we've been surrounded in a culture, I think, where there is a group of men who make a lot of decisions, you know, and they make a lot of decisions on behalf of all of society that benefit really just themselves. You know, I think that if there was a bit more like equality and decision making, we'd actually see better results for for all people. Generally speaking, how do you feel about men? It sounds like they kind of frustrate the crap out of you. No, I love men. I love, I absolutely love, I love being a man. I love all the things that men are capable of. You know, the it's that whole thing, right, where people who criticise a country, for example, are told that they're unpatriotic or that they don't care for their country. Uh, and I and I subscribe to a counterpoint of view, which is the only reason I would ever say anything remotely critical of men is because I know how much we're capable of. You know, I have so many examples of brilliant men in my life, you know, whether it's my own father, whether it's my father's father. And I think that our media would be well served to focus on those things. You know, to really, instead of taking the angle that men are bad, right, or that all men are a certain way, I think that our understanding of what society could be would be improved if we focused on the positive aspects of men. You know, if we focused on the positive reinforcement and building up those positive characteristics rather than simply focusing on the negative aspects of being men. So, you know, that's where when topics come up like, toxic masculinity, for example. I think it's really important that we talk about that, but I think it's also important that we talk about that in a way that creates space for boys and men. You know, when I think about different aspects of society, for instance, the fact that women live on average five years longer than men in developed countries where we have great healthcare systems by and large, all things considered, you know, why is it that women continue to live longer than men? Is it, is there, you know, is there some genetic biological reason or is there a cultural reason underpinning it in terms of the way boys and men have been socialized to never talk about their feelings, to always conceal what they're really thinking, to like build up like a pressure cooker on the inside rather than to vocalize, to put their hand up for help. A lot of these things tie back to leadership as well, you know, and yet we've taken the archetype of leadership from men who it seems aren't always as resilient as women, whether it comes to absorbing physical or other pain or emotional kind of trauma or other aspects of of just being human, right? So I think that from my perspective, it's less about as much as, you know, when, when you deal in these issues, it can be like, oh, men are frustrating. I certainly don't think that it's something that is dependent on just men and being being a man. I think that there's there's the whole reason that I am so passionate about equality and the reason that I think men play such a key role. And that's why, I mean, I do the work to support men to unlearn implicit biases and to relearn, you know, behaviours that are more gender equal is because I think that 
not only does it benefit women, but it benefits men. There's something, particularly when you work with young men, there's this realization of the potential that they didn't realize that they could be something just because they've been taught or they'd seen that it wasn't open to them. You know, if they if they come from a home where a father's always like, be tough, don't cry, don't express your feelings, you know. So it's really about creating opportunities for men to be their most authentic selves. That allows them to become better leaders. And I think that ultimately allows them to become better human beings, not only for the women in their lives, but for themselves as well. I mean, we should come clean and tell the audience that you and I talk a lot about men um, and that you are leading a whole bunch of training courses where you work with directly with men uh, on these issues. Yep. And, you know, the, one of the lovely parts about that is you just meet some really awesome human beings, right? So you've met some really amazing men that you come out of those sessions going, Josh is amazing. And did you hear what Jared said? And we get really passionate about that potential. But it also goes to your, I guess, leadership on issues like family violence and gender equality and how you've developed your voice and your leadership style. Can you, do do you think about it consciously or do you feel like it's something that you've had to learn along the way and, you know, make some mistakes? Oh, it's always, it's always an iterative process. Anything that's seeking any kind of fundamental shift in the way things are or have been is always going to be a process with mishaps and mistakes along the way. And I think that that's the lesson from my parents and that's the lesson from any leader, I think, any effective leader, is that failure is, you know, growing up, my mum would always say, like, failure is the pillar of success. And she would just repeat it over and over and over again. Like, and I, like, wrote, learned it. It's been, like, 25-plus years and I still remember that. You know, like, it was yet, like, I remember being a 10-year-old boy and I remember her saying it to me when I wasn't getting, you know, the best marks in maths class or whatever it may be. And like working with these men has really shown me a number of things. It's shown me, I think, primarily that we as a society misunderstand where men as a collective are and their engagement in these issues. I think there is a, there is a perception that men are less interested in gender equality than they probably are. I think there is a lack of understanding on the part of men and there are unfortunately mistakes made by a group of men. Some are making mistakes that are criminal and abhorrent and are just frankly pathetic. But the majority of men who sit somewhere in that kind of 80% of the population are behaving in ways that they aren't necessarily aware that they're even doing that. A lot of it comes down to things like unconscious bias. They're not aware of what they don't, frankly, what they don't know. And for most men, they they were never given an opportunity. You know, when we run this Changemakers program, Helen, some of the men will come back with feedback saying, I've been working for 20 years and this is the first time I've ever been able to have a conversation on gender equality and inequality in the workplace. And I just think, wow, when women are 51% of the Australian population, you would have an, a conversation on every other aspect of your business, whether it's business development and sales, whether it's what's happening in R&D, whatever it is, wherever you work, you would be having a conversation around how to upskill and become the best kind of leader you can be. And yet men in these situations and in these settings are working two decades, more some of them, 
not having a conversation about it. And we're giving them, a, you know, a unique opportunity to work with, you know, male and female facilitators, whether it's myself or others, to, to go, okay, well, how do we unpack the stuff that we've been conditioned to believe to be the way it is? And so I'm not immune from that, right? Like I'm a man in my mid-30s who has grown up in this society and developed the same way some of them have. So as much as it's a course where, I'm facilitating or teaching them a few things. They're also teaching me, you know, they're teaching me. And some of the women who come along when we, we do this unique thing, Helen, where we'll um, get the men to bring a woman along in their professional life, you know, and to speak about her achievements or what she brings to the team, because we often hear about men's achievements, you know, in public life, but we don't hear as often, or we haven't historically heard as often about women's achievements. So I think that, you know, there's so much to it, but ultimately it's an iterative process. Tarung, you've successfully stepped into a role of training men on how to be better men. You then, with no, There's No Place Like Home, stepped into the space of women who are victim survivors of family violence. And you've done both of those things with considerable skill, charm and confidence. How have you developed that ability to be, in a way, challenging and in pretty uncomfortable spaces? Because it's not easy to find leaders like you who are 35-year-old men who are prepared to take on one of those issues, and yet you've taken on both of them. Yeah, wow. Um, Firstly, Helen, I have to say you're very good for my ego and my self-esteem because I'm going to listen back to that question and I'm just going to play those like 20 seconds of this podcast on repeat. Can you just play it to your (laughs) mum? Oh, my head is just, well, no, she'll just come back with something about, (laughs) about, you know, to bring me back to earth, uh, which fair enough. But I'm serious. Like that's... That's no, a it's really, very kind of It's, it's really interesting you that you can do both of those things. Yeah, it's very kind of you to say. I think, uh, I think it's a few things. Firstly, it's um, growing up, we would have a lot of like family friends visiting our home, right? And my sister was a performing artist and a choreographer and she loved putting on like these mini house concerts and full with like costumes and everything and dress ups. And she would just like thrust me out front and center while she like directed and be like, you have to do this and you have to do that. And like kind of boss me around, even though she was four years younger than me, she was very bossy to me at least. Right. And so I kind of at a young age developed this sense of leaning into fear Right. Whereas, like, if something terrified me, I'd be like, which it did, because here are all of my parents' friends eagerly watching, like, oh, what's this kid going to do for us today? And I would just be like, okay, I guess I have to front up and, and show up. And, and so there was that kind of element of my childhood, right? Which, you know, if, you, if you've got children, put them into situations where they, you know, where, where they're out of their comfort zone a little bit. Support them and make sure that they're safe and secure, but definitely encourage them to go out of their comfort zone. And then I think the other, the other stark reality of all of this, right, speaking seriously, is that losing someone the way that my sister's life was taken from her and the way that my family lost Nikki my parents had a, uh, you know, they probably had a bit of a plan, right? Like when they moved to Australia with me and then they had Nikki three years after moving. And my mum has said, you know, on, on record, it's in court transcripts when Nikki's killer was sentenced, that Nikki completed our family. 
you know, for mum, that was a really like, firstly, there, there hadn't been a girl born in three generations, you know, my dad's side of the family. And I only lost my great-grandmother two years ago at, um, at 104. There, there was this real thing about Nikki being born that it was really celebrated. It wasn't like, oh, you know, you hear about certain cultures where a woman is born and then it's like a liability. It wasn't like that at all. It was, in fact, quite the opposite. It was something celebrated. And I think in some way her birth was probably more celebrated than mine. My aunts and uncles had already had children um, and all of them boys. So I think Nikki's birth was celebrated. But then what that meant for me, losing her, was that everything that I knew to be true, everything that I understood as being normal and natural about the way things are changed. And so I think that created in me a sense of, well, if that can happen, then anything is possible, which me, and I'm part of that anything, right? So I can do anything, whether it's a podcast with 10 victim survivors of family violence, or it's a, a gender equality training program for men, or whatever it is, I am a firm believer that give anything a go, you know, really just just lean into whatever it is. And if it terrifies you, you know, but you're safe, then lean in a bit more, right? Like really try, you know, and I think that's one of the ways that we, that we move away from imposter syndrome. And that's one of the ways that we almost by accident develop resilience, you know, because it's almost that thing of like, I can't do it, I can't do it, and your anxiety gets the better of you, and then you give it a go, you get that first little run on the board, then you get another few, and then you're like, oh, I can actually do this. This is not, and then it becomes second nature. I'm just going to um, reveal, uh, and I hope this doesn't embarrass you, and for all the listeners that, you know, think that hosting a podcast just sounds really, really difficult and improbable and they would never do it, or public speaking, they hate it, they would never do it. I mean, everyone listening today, I'm saying this to you, it is hard, actually, and you do have to put yourself out there. And even someone as accomplished as Tarung had a lot of trouble with the first couple of records, right? Like you yeah. did that. You did that a few times. Yeah, I sounded terrible at the start. I probably, I mean, no, I sound, I sound amazing. Everyone listen to it now. It's just brilliant. No, um, but at the start, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, Helen. It's like uh, you second guessing yourself, and a lot of it was um, born out of wanting to do right by the 10 people, you know, that we interviewed, especially, you know, more than the experts and things who, again, for them, as much as they care, it's part of their job, you know, and some of them will have lived experience. But for the 10 survivors, the victim survivors in particular, it all came down for me to being able to do right by them, you know. And I think once I, once I crossed that that bridge and we got some feedback from a number of them that they felt that they were treated with care and compassion and respect at every stage of the process. I was like, okay, we're, we're doing a good thing here. We're, we're on to the right, you know, we're on the right path. And then it became, you know, by now it's almost like uh, being in that studio feels like a form of second nature. It's like, I, you know, and, and it's nervous trepidation, not because it's like, I don't belong in this chair, but it's nervous energy about wanting to do right you know, and wanting it to be to be what it needs to be, which is um, something that gives hope to people about what's possible, you know, in Australia that's free from family violence and domestic abuse. So, um, yeah, it was at the start, though, oh, Helen, it was, um, yeah, terrifying. 
<laughs> yeah, and I just think it's a really good anecdote because uh, you did push yourself and you went back into that podcast studio day in, day out, time and time again um, to record it until you, you got it right. And I wouldn't expect anything less from you, but, um, you know, these things, when you test yourself, often don't go according to plan and you have to yeah. you have to work a lot harder at it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I was just thinking that, right, a piece of advice. And I don't know that it's necessarily the best, single best piece of advice because I'm always, whenever people talk about the best advice they've ever gotten, I always think, oh, really? Is that that's it. That's the best advice that you've got that you've gotten. And I think that about what I'm just about to say. But when you were talking about the podcast, right? And you said time and time again, it reminded me of something that mum said three or four months after Nikki's murder. And I remember talking to her about the pain and the emotional toll and also the difficult journey of doing any kind of advocacy work. Because now I'm in a position where if I write something, right, and I feel very lucky about this, that if I write something, the media is more likely to publish it, right, because they know who I am, I have some credibility. I didn't have that when Nikki first died, right? So I would, you know, I would get downtrodden and I would feel sad not only about that but then about losing my sister. I felt I just remember feeling so low. And mum said something, right, and she said, give time time. And it's something that I've sort of realized as I get older is the virtue of having patience, right? That we, particularly in this hyper-connected world where we think everything will have happened yesterday or we need it done by yesterday, right? Is that when it comes to ourselves and it comes to us developing our sense of leadership or our sense of resilience is the, the importance of giving time, time. You know, we, I think we overestimate often what we can achieve in a day and underestimate what we can achieve in a year. You know, when it comes to the way that we plan our lives, whether it's at work or home, we'll often, you know, make these lofty to-do lists, which is like, you know, 26 tasks in a day. And it's like, well, that's more than every hour of the day. That's not going to happen. And then we think of our goals for a year and we might have like two at best. You know, we just think, wow, there's so much more that we could potentially do in a longer period of time. And so for me, it's about, having that self-awareness, right, to give time time and to always focus on the longer-term goal. You know, so for us, it's when it, when it comes to women in positions of leadership or it comes to gender equality, you know, turning the dial towards equality is not going to happen overnight. But if we make incremental progress, right, and we, and we keep our spirits high and we ensure that we are looking after ourselves, we develop resilience and we get to the result that we want but it takes time. And so for me, the best advice that I've gotten is from my mum is to work on my impatience, work on that sense of hyperactivity that I've got to get it all done by yesterday and actually just slow down and give it time to get done properly. I absolutely love that. And I think we should definitely have your mum on with you next time. Can you tell me, because I, I think you're going to give me a really interesting answer to this, despite the fact that you know, you're only in your 30s and I don't think 30-year-old men usually think about this stuff too much. But do you have a sense of what success would be for you? So you're 55. Yeah, wow. What do you What do you want to achieve by then? Do you have a sense of that and do you think like that? Sometimes. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. But then you know what's happened, Helen, is that 
I've had since the age of 24 every year uh, an almost life-altering event. In my mid-20s, I got really, really sick and I was in hospital for like six months and had to be flown to Sydney to see like one of the only doctors who worked on that, you know, that who did that particular operation that I needed. That And that was like 2014, the year before my sister's murder. And then, you know, relationship breakups and and, and that kind of thing along the way. So like every year something happened where it was like, whoa, there's, there's the rug out from underneath me. And so now... I have this thing of, yes, I think about what life will be like in 20 years, right? But then I think with the pandemic, so many of us are just like, we've all collectively had the rug pulled out from underneath us. You know, like, let's be frank, we're living in a time where people in our own country who have relatives in WA can't actually cross state lines without quarantining. It's not feasible. I mean, it's possible. It's not impossible, but it's not feasible or in any way tenable to, to go there and to see family or to work or to live the way that we were used to, right? So when it comes to me and thinking 20 years ahead, I have sort of vague ideas about what success will look like. But to me, success is ultimately, am I living in a place that's comfortable in my own head? You know, because I think of my own battles with mental health and mental illness. And I mean, I take antidepressant medication and have for a few years now. And so for me, when I think about 20 years from now, I think, will I be happy in my own head? And so if I'm working in a way where I'm staying true to what I believe and what I think are core values, you know, of fairness, of equality, of inclusion, of diversity um, around, you know, whether it's you know, I come from an Indian background, so race and gender, particularly growing up in a gender equal household, which is, I think is, you know, culturally it's pretty uncommon, you know, but also surprisingly, as, as we see, uncommon in Australia as well, you know, when it comes to, to our culture here. So I think, um, you know, for me, success is about finding a way to feel like what I'm thinking and what I'm doing are as closely related as possible. Because when they're not, then I start to, you know, to feel like I'm drifting away from from what I believe in. And particularly losing my sister helped me reflect on this, you know, about what success is. When we take a, the example of domestic abuse and family violence, you know, you can have all the riches in the world, but if you're a woman living in a home that you're not safe in, what do you have really? You know, so for me, it comes down to some of those fundamental things that are human rights, right? That's ultimately, that's like, I, I feel good in that. I mean, yeah, I'd like, I mean, I like all the material things. I love nice cars. I, you know, I literally today I got fitted for a, a you know, made to measure suit. I was telling you before we started recording that, that that is what I did this afternoon. Like there was a block in my calendar where it was like an hour and I was like to everyone, I was like, oh, I'm not available. And they were like, I think you might have a doctor's appointment. No, I was getting fitted, right? And then we were like obsessing over lapel widths and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I have niche idiosyncrasies like everybody else, right? But Ultimately, all of that stuff and, and success and money and work and, and all of that, it's ultimately ephemeral, right? And I wasn't always like this. I didn't always think that. It's that, unfortunately, my family, like far too many families, like one Australian family every week because that's how many women on average every week are losing their life to male violence, are put into that position. You know, and I think for me, one of the ways that resilience was built was seeing firsthand how crushed other families were. And so I remember seeing, you know, how crushed other families were 
And I remember my sister's sort of generosity of spirit and her smiling, bubbly personality. And I just thought, if I give in to all that darkness, then he wins. You know, like, like family violence ultimately is an act against an individual, but it's family violence because it impacts the whole family unit. You know, that's something that whatever your family looks like, right, whatever your domestic partnership setting looks like, that's something that we hold dear, right? That's something that's so important to our way of life and how we get through life. And so for me, it was like I've got to find a way, any way, to, to get through to the other side. It's a journey. Like it's a constant work in progress. And like we were saying about, you know, leadership training, it's iterative. It's every step of the way. It's not like you do one course and then all of a sudden you're an expert. It's like you do one course, you learn a bit. You go back and read the materials, you learn a bit more, you know, and you keep applying yourself. And over time, you know, you look back and you go, oh, wow, I'm in a much better position than I was. I'm way more resilient. But overnight, that change is incremental. Uh, I think we've learned a lot from you in this discussion. I just want to say I'm um, so proud to have worked with you on a couple of your projects and congratulations on There's No Place Like Home. It is a stunning piece of podcast making and um, you've done an incredible piece of work. So congratulations and thank you for joining us on the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. It's been great to chat and um, I'm really hopeful that people will listen to it and uh, take something hopeful from the the victim survivors who've so generously shared so much of their lives with us and they had no reason to have to do that. And so I think we all feel just a tremendous sense of gratefulness to them. So thank you so much. And your mum, can we, can we bring her back next time? Absolutely, yeah. Just, in fact, the only reason people talk to me is to get close to my mom. Um, and I've done a, a very good job of gatekeeping um, for, for several years now. And I think that I'll continue to do that because um, she's the real moneymaker. Yeah, well, we got plenty of your mum's um, excellent advice. I'm sure if we talked longer, you'd have more, but it has been enormously good fun to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson. 